0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HouseStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this week's theme is art history, or rather, art history. Haha, <laughs> I love it. Yes, indeed. Today, we're going to be talking about the female nude in art, particularly in Western art, and this. Male-muse, female-nude relationship, which I know I I remember seeing on screen for the first time in the classic film, Titanic. (laughs) That's right. That was so racy for me in seventh grade. Yeah, I watched it in the theater with my mother because she felt like she needed to supervise me seeing this nude scene, and it was... It was a little uncomfortable. I saw it with Chad. My, that's my father. I saw it with my father. Yeah, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack painting, uh, Kate Winslet as Rose wearing that, wearing that necklace. Yeah, and nothing else. Yeah, spoiler alert. She's not wearing anything. <laughs> <laughs> she's wearing clothes in the rest of the movie, but anyway. Another spoiler. The boat sinks. <laughs> no. But since this isn't a podcast on my memories of watching James Cameron movies with my mother, Let's talk about the female nude in art history because the history of this figure is fascinating. The very fact that we refer to it as a nude and not a naked figure yeah. is really interesting. And and then that whole relationship between the male artist and female muse has so much Contains so much for us to unpack. Yeah,
3: that's right. And so let's start off with a quote from Linda Need, who's an art historian and author of The Female Nude. She writes Issues concerning the female body and cultural value, representation, feminism, and cultural politics, and the definition and regulation of the obscene are brought into clearer focus when the female nude is read as a historical. Text And I mean, if you think about it, not knowing anything about art, it would make sense that there is some historical context to the nude through the centuries. But there really is, like you said, so much to unpack, so much different meaning wrapped up in different representations of the human body.
2: Yeah, and what we're going to be doing in this podcast is trying to do just that, read the female nude as an historical text. And we're going to be highlighting some specific paintings and we'll be doing our best to describe them uh, as not being professional art historians or art critics. And to kick things off though, it was actually the, uh, the group Gorilla Girls, which originally raised this question of Do women have to be naked to get into the Met? And they were raising issue with the abundance of female nudes in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the abundance of male painters and sculptors represented by them. And the statistics they collected just by walking through the museum... Uh, we're a little imbalanced, shall we say? Yeah. So they've done this
3: campaign uh, a couple of times, starting in 1989, and they ended up putting out a bunch of uh, press releases, uh, billboards, basically media around the numbers that they found. And in 1989, they found that less than 5% of the artists in the Met art sections were women, but 85% of the nudes were female. Fast forward to 2004, both of those numbers had dropped to 3% and 83% respectively. And in 2012, when they repeated their study, they found that less than 4% of the artists in the Met were women, but 76% of the nudes were female.
2: (laughs) So we're getting fewer female artists in the Met and fewer female nudes, which kind of shakes out to... Not necessarily progress, (laughs) but they were painting, pun there, painting an important point about, obviously, what kind of art is considered important, and also the very gendered history of art that we're not really going to get into that much in this episode, because for a long time, women weren't even allowed in art schools. We've been having to play catch up. Yeah, exactly. And so let's
3: take a walk, shall we? Yes. Through the history of of naked lady statues and and paintings.
2: So let's start in classical antiquity because this is really where the female nude begins. Now of course we should mention that there are some exceptions To that, such as the Venus of Willendorf uh, statue, the fertility goddess with the very large breasts and buttocks, which dates back to around 30,000 to 25,000 BCE, and also some ancient Indian temple art depicting female nudes. But a lot of art historians will tell you that the nude, and especially the female nude, is a primarily Western art phenomenon that really begins in Greece. Yeah, and a lot of this is
3: coming from Larissa Bonfonte's paper, Nudity as a Costume in Classical Art, and I was just telling Kristen before we came into the studio that this is a very long paper, and it could be interpreted as a little dry. I'm sorry, Larissa. But it is so interesting. And, and me having only taken one art history class ever in college, um, and I was such a nerd for it and I loved it, but you know, journalism called, so I couldn't. But anyway, it is absolutely right up my alley. And she, she really delves so deeply into The context surrounding both the male nude and the female nude and why one looks the way it does and why the other one is maybe not as acceptable or was not as acceptable to begin with. But she points out that in ancient Greece, art, culture, everything really revolved around the male nude and what it meant because the male nude was based on this ideal image of a man. And the ideal image of a man came from athletes. Greeks were all about working out and getting buff, uh, in the buff. So yeah. To speak. Yeah. The first Olympics mm-hmm. in the nude.
2: <laughs> in the nude. There were no, there were no Nike jerseys and shorts.
3: No, I mean, they did wear like a loincloth type thing sometimes. And she points out that. Greeks throughout, throughout ancient Greek history, they themselves weren't even sure where their tradition of donning the costume of nudity came from, but that you were supposed to be this like super hyper masculine buff guy who was ready to fight if you were nude.
2: Yeah. And, and she notes too, how that ideal male nudity was really considered, quote, the highest kind of beauty, which is a little bit in opposition to maybe our perception of beauty in the 21st century today, which is often more of a feminine ideal. But back then, ooh, the body was all about that male, chiseled, proportioned, Body,
3: Yeah. And they were definitely intended to celebrate perfection and not reflect physical reality or variety. They weren't trying to, like, show what, uh, you know, the Agricola down the street looked like. They wanted to show the ideal man who was an athlete or a hero or a god because male nudity equals power. It really symbolized power. But it's also important to keep in mind that homoeroticism and homosexuality around this time in ancient Greece was totally A-OK, you know, it wasn't out of the norm. Um, and so the male figure, especially in the gymnasium, uh, the nude male figure was absolutely accepted and considered to be a thing of beauty.
2: Well, and it's also worth noting, too, that in exactly what you said about how those nudes weren't intended to show what the average male body looked like. They were in the oldest school sense of the word. Photoshopped or airbrushed. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we have been doing that, removing our flaws and creating these beauty ideals since we first kind of started all of this to begin with. And the Greek word kouros, K-O-U-R-O-S, is meant to describe these types of sculptures of men who are naked, standing in those kinds of of classical power poses. Yeah, and a lot of time,
3: if they weren't meant to signify a god like Apollo specifically, then they were used in a temple maybe to honor him or in a way to sort of Honored divinity, but the female equivalent, the Cori statue, who's also a a woman standing upright facing forward, is usually clothed, and she was not based on any ideal feminine shape or appearance. She was basically the the male shape that they were like, oh, we're gonna put a dress on this one; it's a lady. And so, while the the male was supposed to symbolize divinity and perfection, he was nude, and that was fabulous. The woman was definitely going to be clothed because the context of nudity versus clothing in ancient Greek society. I mean, there's so much that we could get into, but we won't. But I will just touch on it by saying that a man was ready to fight, basically, when he was nude and he was ready to work out and get buff and sweat. Whereas if a woman were seen without clothes on, she with her pale skin and her soft flesh, because she doesn't go outside that much and and do hard work like men do, you know, she was considered Unprotected, if she was if she was nude or naked, and um, would the nudity for a woman at this time would symbolize something bad, like she was about to be attacked, or she was a prostitute, or something like that.
2: Yeah, it symbolized the exact opposite of the power inherent to male nudity, which was weakness or powerlessness. Now, Bonfante also points out that it could also function as powerful magic, but even in that regard. It's obviously not something that is, is as normalized and accepted. Right. But if we hit uh, the 4th century BCE, well, things get
3: shaken up a little bit. We get a uh, very famous Aphrodite sculpture by Praxiteles, and he totally throws convention out the window.
2: Yeah. I mean, he, this sculpture is mentioned in pretty much any article that you would read about the history of the female nude because it's kind of the first... In the sense of depicting full female nudity, but it's important that Praxiteles does this on a sculpture of a divinity, the goddess of love. It's usually, um, goddesses or, you know, these mythological female figures that are considered acceptable Mm -hmm. to be shown in the nude, and especially the association with love, eroticism, sex, and also, too, mythological figures representing fertility, would be acceptable as well. Because, I mean, think about how, you know, in this kind of context, the female body is really just a vessel for sex reproduction.
3: Yeah, exactly. Desire, things like that. Yeah. Depicting a naked A nude or naked regular lady is definitely considered in poor taste, but the gods and the goddesses were almost above all that. It's almost okay to depict, uh, you know, the goddess of love being naked because, you know, you're not, she's not gonna care about anything you say.
2: Yeah, well she would probably have possessed that powerful magic Mm -hmm. through her nudity. And Bonfante notes that even in classical Greek art, and this is a trend that will continue into more modern art, naked women, just everyday women, would usually be considered prostitutes in that context, in an artistic context. But that's not to
3: say that the work by Praxiteles was not, at some points, titillating. Yeah. Just, Just because it was a goddess and she's above your scorn or whatever, people, doesn't mean that the viewers weren't like, oh my
2: goodness. Yeah, Jonathan Jones, who is an art critic writing for The Guardian, notes that uh, apparently at least one person, at least one person, maybe more, <laughs> attempted to copulate with Capital I Venus, with this statue. Uh, and then she's standing. we should note, she's naked and one of her hands is covering up her mons pubis and the other hand is sort of cupping her breast. And, I mean, seeing it... From our perspective today, it doesn't, it's not shocking because yeah. we see so many, we've seen so many statues, sculptures and paintings like this. Right. Um, but I can understand how if you don't see this kind of female figure in such an unclothed state and, and it being like, okay, and her not just being uh, symbolized as a prostitute, maybe that's, I mean, what do you do with that? That's gotta <laughs> be, I can understand how it would be shocking and perhaps even arousing if, if this is the first time you're seeing something like this.
3: Right, and a lot of the sources that Kristen and I were looking at point out that the very way that Capitoline Venus is standing also sort of informs the way that people think about it and how they interpret it as erotic versus art. You know what I mean? Um, the fact that she's actively trying to cover herself up is doing even more to draw attention to the fact that she could be or is a sexual being, you know, if she weren't marble. Uh, statues are people, too, Caroline. Statues are people, too. And by covering up, it's almost more erotic than if she were just kind of standing there with her hands on her hips, like
2: smoking a marble cigarette, you know, like I'm just hanging out. Well, and notable, too, that she's standing next to her... Her garment. She's just come from bathing herself, so there's a reason yeah. for her nudity. She's not just hanging out for this naked for the sake of being naked, because that would be awful. Well, that would be yes, that would be uh, inappropriate. <laughs> totally. Um, but we see things
3: start to shift um, in the Byzantine era and in the Middle Ages with the spread of Christianity. Female nudes start to get covered up basically until classical antiquity gets rediscovered and becomes exalted in the Renaissance. And so when we start in the Byzantine era, like in the 4th century, through to the Middle Ages, nudity was associated with guilt or shame or even lowbrow humor, especially women's. And overall, naked men and women were associated closely with pagan Greek culture, which was not okay. And then when you get into the Middle Ages in the 5th to about the 14th century, Things take a turn, because at this point, nudity is considered downright sinful.
2: Yeah, the emphasis is completely on chastity. So Christianity is kind of like, shut it down, (laughs) put on a robe. But then with this sort of rediscovery and newfound appreciation for Greco-Roman cultural values, and you see this big time in the artwork, and, and you see these kinds of images starting to pop up. For instance with Botticelli's birth of Venus which was painted in 1484 and this is a very famous painting most of our listeners have probably seen this you can probably recall uh Venus standing in her seashell covering her one you know one of her breasts and then uh her hair is that her hair that's covering up her her vulva so she's she's na- she's nude yeah but, but again it's not it's not naked
3: Right. And she's standing very similarly to the way that Capitoline, Praxitelli's Capitoline Venus is standing. Um, But rather than kind of looking to the side like the other Venus was, she's looking directly out
2: at you, being like, yeah, I'm a goddess, what? Yeah. And this is thought to be one of the Renaissance's first large-scale female nudes. And it's notable, too, that Botticelli was like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use this whole mythology plus spiritual spirituality and divinity thing to make it okay for me to be depicting a woman like this. And that playing with religious and mythological imagery and symbolism is going to be something that other artists as well will use in order to Sort of prevents scandal from happening. Otherwise, it yeah. it makes it permissible for them to be painting women in this way.
3: Yeah, and I mean that's something that we're going to see for the next forever.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and I'm glad that you mentioned the gaze too, because mm-hmm. that's something that comes up a lot as well in terms of how, at the time that these paintings were being shown for the first time, how they were in the level to which they were interpreted as. Uh, scandalous or not.
3: Well, speaking of scandalous, we get to Titian's Venus of Urbino in 1538, and there's a lot happening in this picture. Speaking of the gaze, the subject of the painting is staring right out at the viewer. The subject is completely naked, and she has a hand, again, over her vulva, but... Nothing covering her breasts. And she is, I mean, she is staring right at you. And like, here I am. I'm on this chaise lounge and I'm holding grapes and there's a dog and a kid and there's another lady in the room. Who knows what's going on?
2: Yeah. I mean, you have like presumably her child and maybe the nursemaid in the background. But the thing, though, about her hand, her left hand Which is, yes, covering up her vulva. And though there is a shadow in that region, there are no definitive pubic hairs visible, which we will revisit. But her fingertips are not entirely visible. And some people found that a bit much as well. Because it's this question of, Titian, what were you getting at? (laughs) What is she really doing here? Are we catching her in a moment of... Pleasure, or is her hand just benignly resting in that spot? Just resting in that spot. There could be a breeze. Yeah, she's I mean, she's protecting a cold. I mean, holding a pose for a portrait, it would get a little chilly. Yeah, one would assume. <laughs> but it's interesting too, talking about playing with symbolism and contrast. You have this, you know, rather erotic female body in the foreground, but then in the background you have motherhood mm-hmm. the child the the maid uh, the sleeping puppy next yeah. to her it's really interesting how all of that sort of balances out right
3: now meanwhile in the 15th century drawing from life had really become part of workshop practice although women typically were not used as models because Michelangelo's women, for instance, were just modified men. And this was the same thing that we saw with the Greek statues of the karai, which were male figures sort of modified to be female.
2: Yeah, and this is something that Ellen Graves, writing uh, for the University of Dundee Museum, uh, points out. And, I mean, considering that women were excluded that much from the artistic process, that, of course, they weren't in art schools or receiving any kind of formal training at that point and certainly weren't painting any nudes. It was even questionable that they would even be able to pose nude for for these paintings. And yet them being pictured in this way, presented, is still more acceptable. As long as they're not actively involved in it, then it's okay. But we can look at them and appreciate them from afar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From behind a frame, the gilded frame. It's all a metaphor. Um, But jumping forward to the 17th century, the Baroque period begins to embrace more realism. Example, Flemish Peter Paul Rubens, who was the 17th century's go-to female nude dude. Rubens (laughs) was all about some, some curvaceous lady nudes. And I first learned about Rubens, Caroline, when I was a kid because, and I need to ask him about this because I have no idea why, my parents had this huge Rubens coffee table book that they kept in our formal dining room that we never really went into all that much. And I remember playing in there one time as a child randomly and pulling out this book and being like, whoa, oh whoa, should I even be looking at this? And it was like, yeah, it was, I, I don't, for my pretty conservative parents, it was a little bit of a curveball to find at the time. But uh yeah, I kind of, you got to love his fleshy ladies. Yeah, I was just going to say they're very fleshy.
3: And I was also going to say that, I mean, I think that's your, the whole thing about your parents having that book is a perfect snippet of like history and the way that anyone views art and and the nude woman that like that's safe and that's okay because it's fine art, you know, and it's, it's like harmless almost. It's not uh, a magazine, like an editorial, you know, spread in a magazine or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, Ruben's, Ruben's ladies definitely were moving away from that Greek quote unquote ideal of like literally using math to achieve the the perfect proportion both for male nudes and female nudes and statues um his women and and many other artists of his time started showing women who, yeah, they have hips or they have bellies or they have butts. They even have a little bit of cellulite. I know. It makes me think of Us Weekly and like showing, you know, those poor celebrities in their bathing suits. Stars, they're just like us. Yeah, Rubens women, they're
2: just like us. (laughs) Thank you, Rubens. Um, Around the same time, though, Bernini also is using nudity in his sculpture, although... Genitals are often covered. For instance, if you look at one of his sculptures, Apollo and Daphne, it's really interesting because you have Apollo kind of chasing after Daphne. And in this context, her nudity is considered acceptable because going back to, hearkening back to that classical Greek association of female nudity with vulnerability and weakness, clearly she is being like caught in one of those vulnerable states, and she's trying to escape Apollo. She's turned away from him rather than toward him to suggest willingness.
3: But you have to keep in mind, I mean, while all of this is going on through the centuries, the Catholic Church is definitely trying to put a stop to all of this nudity, all of these naked ladies and naked gents. You know, they're saying that it's so pagan. This harkens back to some, like, Greek pagan ritual, and we hate it. Can't you just, like, put a t-shirt on her? You know, or like the 16th century equivalent of a t-shirt. But Anyway, we have so many more great pieces of art to talk about and so much more historical context to get into when we come right back from a quick break.
1: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there, and we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight A service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help.
0: You can talk with your counselors in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. And BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas.
1: They can give you access to help that might not be available in your area. And you just have to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with a counselor in under 48 hours.
0: BetterHelp is an affordable option and our listeners get
1: 10% off your first month with a discount code MOMSTUFF. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better H E L P dot com slash Momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. This episode is brought
0: to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
1: Yes, and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we, we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun.
0: Yeah, And I'm, with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers in traditional
1: or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. ChyNet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup.
2: Welcome back to the stuff Mom Never Told You, Art History Museum, <laughs> which really only contains I'm trying to count up the number of pieces we're we're talking about. It's a small collection, but important. Yeah. And we wanted to kick off this half of the podcast with my favorite historical anecdote that we ran across in this female nude research. And it has to do with Diego Velasquez's Rokeby Venus, which is, I mean, there, there's a lot to talk about with this portrait because we have, it, it's thought of as one of the most famous buttockses of all time. It's a great butt. Yes, it's she's, beautiful. She's got a great butt.
3: So you've got this slender but curvy woman lying, uh, she's facing away from the viewer. So you just see her back. Uh, she's looking into a mirror that's being held up by a chubby little cupid, but she's, she is looking into that mirror. Is it at you? Is it at her? Is she contemplating her nudity? Is she contemplating how vulnerable she is? Or is she just admiring herself? Who knows?
2: Who knows? So many layers going on here. So Velasquez completed this work in the mid-17th century. And fast forward to 1914. And I know I'm jumping out of our timeline for a moment, but it's worth it for this story. So fast forward to 1914, In England, this painting is hanging in the National Gallery, and a suffragette by the name Mary Richardson has had enough (sighs) of the Rokeby Venus. And she walks in and slices it at least five times with a meat cutter. What was going on,
3: Caroline? Well, she was, she was really upset about how Emmeline Pankhurst had been treated during her arrest. And she was disgusted, not only with that, but also the idea of men ogling this naked woman and her fabulous milky skin and her butt. Yeah. She was like, no, this naked lady is not going to be around anymore. You're not going to be staring at this naked woman and, you know, getting all excited and Twitter pated. And also free, free Emmeline.
2: Free Emmeline. And so she, uh, the, the media though nicknames her as a result of this slasher Mary, which really makes her sound like a serial killer. <laughs> but she was just a ropey Venus killer. Although the painting was restored, even though you could, if you Google image this, you can see images of it with the slashes in it. She really went for it.
3: I think. My my first reaction to hearing that story was like one of horror that that you would slash any piece of art. I mean, no matter what the the context is or whatever. But the more the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I think that adds more value to it because now a historical piece of art that in and of itself is so precious now contains the scars of a really
2: important period of history. Yeah. Well, and also too in terms of what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast reading these works as historical texts and how it intersects with the actual real life women on the other side of these paintings and yeah. how they were dealing with their bodies in society like it's it definitely speaks volumes but back to our art historical timeline let's get into the 18th century with rococo Rococo gets a little playful. I kinda love Rococo. Yeah, lots of swirls. Yeah, they're just like, Hey, we're (laughs) Rococo. La de da
3: Here's some things. I love it. Yeah, and, um, yeah. So this is the mid eighteenth century, Rococo painter Francois Boucher's nude painting of Marie Louise O'Murphy. That's a name, Marie Louise O'Murphy. Yeah, right. So in the mid eighteenth century, Rococo painter Francois Boucher paints a nude of Marie Louise O'Murphy, the mistress of Louis the Fifteenth, and it is described. As playfully erotic because she's not dainty. She's not like daintily covering anything or she is looking away from the viewer. But she girlfriend is totally splayed out on her blanket. (laughs) She's sprawled out, just just hanging out on sort of a chaise lounge. I like to imagine that she's watching the real housewives like over the edge of her of her sofa bed or whatever this is.
2: If you toss some stretchy pants on her, (laughs) she is me on the weekends.
3: (laughs) No, I know. but I mean, she's she's definitely also fleshy as well. You know, she is not what you would call like the Greek ideal of the perfect nude virginal woman. I mean, this woman is a mistress of
2: a member of the royal family. Yeah. I mean, it kind of puts it all out there. And it's also, though, exemplary of Rococo's playful eroticism. Right where they still got their hang-ups, but they're like, well, but let's add some flourishes, too. Yeah,
3: I mean, look at, if you look at the fabrics that are in this painting, yeah. I mean, they're beautiful. They're so rich. I mean, she's lying on looks like pink and white fabric, but you, it's just so, like the pink just pops, and there's also some orange kind of brownish rust-colored fabric all around her, and it's like you can almost feel the texture of the fabric. I get lots of velvet
2: yeah. associations with it.
3: But yeah, she's. why wouldn't you be splayed out on that fabric? It Looks
2: great. Just hanging out, just you know, Marie Louise O'Murphy, rubbing my, rubbing my bits on all of this pink silk. It's great. <laughs> what a life! <laughs> uh. Bring me a sandwich. Now, when we move though into the 19th century, the boundaries of the female nude start to get tested. Some artists start to get a little bit more experimental, but at the same time, putting a, a little broader context on this. The exclusion of women from life-drawing classes, academies, and art schools continues for most of the century. So even though by this point, male artists have been around for so long, they're like, we've painted so many female nudes, we're going to start to get a little more experimental, especially the envelope, and women are like, can we just uh, get into one of those life-drawing classes? I mean, I'm fine with my watercolors over here, but I wouldn't... Well, in terms of
3: testing those boundaries and getting more experimental, we see Manet's infamous Olympia in 1863. And what is so interesting about this painting, which features a woman positioned almost exactly like Titian's Venus of Urbino, she's covering... Well, she's kind of got her legs crossed, but so she has her hands sort of across her lap, but I mean, you can see her breast. She's not covering it up and she's looking directly at the viewer with a maid or some sort of servant next to her. Um, but yeah, she's defiantly looking at the audience, which adds to the fact that Manet definitely used nudity in this picture to shock rather than to idealize Because this woman, the subject of this painting, was a famous prostitute. And a lot of the people who came through the gallery and saw this
2: might have recognized her. Oh, Oh, oh. oh, Olympia. I just saw her. Hello. I owe you some money. (laughs) (laughs) Now, on the flip side of that, though, Eugene Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People uses female nudity in... A different sense. It's not so much to shock and titillate. It echoes classical Greek nude motifs with Lady Liberty showing her breast, exposing her breast to symbolize revolution and liberty. It's depicting the French Revolution. She's holding up the French flag. And she is leading the charge with all of these men behind her. So that's a, a totally different kind of context to see. So talking about the kinds of experimentation going yeah. on. Yeah, so much symbolism, because she's right in the middle
3: of this smoky, bloody, dirty battle scene, but she herself is still very pale. And yeah, those exposed breasts are such a such a symbol. It's not just, yeah, like you said, it's not just to titillate. It's to show this is harkening back to those Greek ideals of democracy.
2: It also reminds me me, too, of Amazonians Mm -hmm. where their whole thing was going into battle with with the exposed breast, singular. You show those men. That's right. Um, This is also, though, the century where we start to see more depictions of female nudes as dangerous women. Lots of Eves, Delilahs, Salome's popping up. Um, One example is the 1896 Edvard Munch painting Jealousy Two, where you have this Eve-like figure who is sort of halfway nude in the background, reaching up to pluck what looks to be an apple, standing next to a man in the foreground. You have a guy who looks really <laughs> bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a creepy painting. Yeah, he's like, Ugh, I should have known better than to trust that Eve. She will lead that other guy astray as well. But again, if we look at her if we look at all of these Venuses, what, what, what is missing, aside from any skin color but white? What is missing, <sighs> Caroline? Or, we're missing some body hair, there,
3: specifically pubic hair. There is no body hair. Yeah, and oh my God, this, I mean, we could have done an episode purely on just pubic hair, or the lack thereof, in classical and neoclassical art. Yeah. It's
2: fascinating. I mean, to be fair... When you look at male nudes, there's not a ton of pubic hair Mm -hmm. but there's at least a suggestion. Whereas when it comes to the women, it really looks like a Barbie doll in that sense.
3: Yeah, and a lot of that goes back to that Bonfante paper about the ideal image of the of the human form and, and where that came from and the fact that, you know, the ideal male form is the buff athlete, but the ideal female form or the even the ideal idea of a female human is one who is virginal, pure, very young. So that's why a lot of the time you saw Greek statues of men, even though they're buff and they're like supposed to be the ideal, they have smaller penises because that meant youth, younger men have smaller penises. And I know it's getting sort of sort of iffy here, but stick with me. And it was the same for the female figure. A lot of times she would have smaller breasts to signify that she's younger. And what went along with that is a lack of body hair. And so what are all of these images that we're talking about based on classical Greek art?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And... This was something that was uh, discussed in a chapter we read in Modern Art, a critical introduction, because, yeah, we read textbooks <laughs> sometimes on the podcast. Um There's this whole artistic distinction, too, between being nude and naked, because it's really important that these women, in order to be appreciated and almost exalted in an artistic sense, to be these romantic muses, they were nude, mm-hmm. because to ha- be naked would be to have body hair, would be to show pubic hair and just really what our bodies look like when we are actually naked. But the nude is something more elevated. It's it's airbrushed in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah. And of course we have to mention the story of the art critic who was terrified by Pubic hair?
2: Yeah, and this, this is an alleged story that circulates a lot. So it, grain of salt, but it's fantastic regardless.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's this story about Victorian era art critic John Ruskin who, you know, he was super familiar with hairless nudes in the art gallery. But when he went home with his wife on their wedding night, he supposedly refused to consummate the relationship
2: because he was shocked, shocked, I tell you, to see her pubic hair. But the happy ending to that is that apparently Ruskin's wife was like, okay, I'll see you later, that's not okay. And then she married, remarried another guy who I think was aware that pubic hair existed.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I think that ties in to a lot of the attitude about pubic hair, which is that and and the nude versus the naked thing or the naked thing for people who ever read Louis Grisard. But um somebody with body hair, male or female, is somebody who's like a real real human, fleshy person that you might have sex with or who might be having sex with someone else. But the the marble cold, stark white nude is something
2: that is it's like
3: perfect and precious and pure. Yeah, but it's
2: it's notable too that with those classical female nudes, yes, they're all bald, but sometimes early sketches of mm. them might contain hints of pubic hair. So they just kind of gradually edited it out. Um, and early modern artists also kept with that convention or used either a woman's hand or the angle to conceal where pubic hair would be. So that's why you always see these Venuses throughout the centuries in repose, but with usually like their left hand just conveniently covering up their vulva, which I mean, to be fair, that is a natural way that all women <laughs> lay on a chaise lounge. You automatically put one hand, whether you're clothed or not, over <laughs> right. your pubes. You just have to go there. Yes. It's just the hand. It just, it just seeks it out
3: like a missile. I mean, it is warm. <laughs> Um. Well, something else that got people warm and hot and bothered was uh, Francisco Goya's 1800 painting La Maya de Nuda, which is one of the first paintings to intentionally show lady pubic hair.
2: Yeah, and here's the thing. It showed just a hint, just the tiniest tiniest bit of pubic hair and she I mean also let's talk about her gaze she's laying back her hands are behind her head and she is looking directly at the viewer um, and the addition of a little bit of pubic hair made it rather scandalous to the point that when it was owned by the Spanish Prime Minister it was kept in a private room you wouldn't put out something like that in your drawing room yeah where other people might come and be like whoa oh goodness <laughs> Who was that prostitute on the wall?
3: I know and it's it's funny though because this is from eighteen hundred, but she's posed in a way that we would be very familiar with in like pinups, like nineteen forty pinup poses and the amount of pubic hair that is featured in this painting is so minimal it's it's almost as minimal as maria bellows in that movie that almost received an nc-17 rating remember uh, she it almost received an nc-17 rating until they cut the scene that had her little landing strip and suddenly it was fine it, it got an r rating but again like uh It's just helpful to point out that people have and will always be scared of ladies' body hair.
2: But it's also that triple threat, almost literally, of pubic hair, the direct gaze, and also a more inviting kind of pose. Mm-hmm. She is rather open con- with her, her hands behind her head like that. But that is absolutely nothing compared to what French artist Gustave Courbet painted on commission in 1866 and it's a painting called The Origin of the World and it is unlike anything we have seen up to this point because it is a full on close up of a woman's vulva yeah with pubic hair with ample pubic and hair and butt
3: crack i mean it's basically she's lying down with her legs spread and you your view as the viewer is straight on.
2: Yeah. And it's really interesting that the the painting as it is, as it's known now, is headless, legless. It's really just a close up of her midsection and her vulva. But apparently it's only part of a full nude that he painted. And then some art historians think that the guy who commissioned the painting, who's really into erotic art chopped out everything else and just blammo made it what it is today. It's a
3: nice piece to hang above the fireplace. Yeah, it's
2: really homey, you know. It is, yeah, the origin of the world. But it was so surprising, like, especially as we were researching this and kind of walking through this timeline of like, okay, oh, they're demure nude after demure nude. And then, whoa, wow. Even though the image itself, considering if you have seen it, a naked female body, it's not All like it's not shocking, but in the context of female nudes, it is. Yeah, it's very shocking because
3: it's just it's so real. Yeah, like that got real. Yeah, it got real. Photorealistic, photorealistic. Yeah, and then in 1917, police closed a Paris exhibition of Medigliani's paintings because, again, they revealed. Pubic hair. It is the signifier of sex, and thus it is associated with, like we've said, prostitutes and pornography.
2: Yeah, and even again, though, too, with Medigliani's paintings, there is very little pubic hair shown. And it's really not even that graphic. Like, his style is not realistic at all. But these women are... They're looking at you. Their hands are above their heads. Also, this one in front of us has a little bit of armpit hair as well. She does. Yeah, so she does. Even more. That's, that's like the most body hair we've seen so far. She's also orange. She
3: is orange, which is uh, it's sort of a naked, takeoff. naked she, and orange. Naked and orange. Uh Yeah,
2: the tanning went awry that day. <laughs> she stayed in a little too long. Um, the art world's discomfort, though, with female pubic hair is still palpable, which is Kind of wild to consider. In 2014, for instance, artist Lena McCall's Portrait of Ms. Ruby May was removed from the Society of Women Artists annual exhibition because it was deemed pornographic and unfit for, quote, children and vulnerable adults. Vulnerable to what? Pubic hair, I guess.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the painting was this woman... um, Basically, she's she's fully clothed, but she has her pants unzipped and sort of pulled down a little bit so that you can see pubic hair. And she's looking right at you. She's got an eyebrow cocked. And I think she's smoking a pipe or a cigarette or something. Yeah. But yeah, again, the combination of a woman with agency, seemingly looking right
2: at you being like, what? Here I am wearing my little suit with my pubes showing. And that kind of outrage, though, happening exactly a century after Slasher Mary is cutting up the Rokeby Venus Mm -hmm. in the National Gallery is, I mean, it's astounding. I know. And in addition to this mystery of the missing pubic hair, one other glaring similarity with all of these female nudes that we've talked about is how they are all white. When it comes to female nudes in Western art, you rarely see women of color except for instance, in the case of Manet's Olympia, there is a woman of color, but she is in the background and clothed and is obviously, uh, a maid or a servant of some sort. Right. Yeah. We read a paper called A Pedagogy of the Black Female Body by
3: AOA Coley. And she talks a lot about how and why the black female body is missing from art. And it's really sort of a complicated, multi-layered point that she brings up about Slavery and about the way that African women's bodies were displayed and how post-colonial era, post-slavery, there was an effort to combat that image of the hypersexual black woman. And so her figure was covered up. But then there's the question of, well, why are we covering This woman up this, you know, hypothetical woman are subject of a painting up when she could be the subject of a beautiful painting or sculpture just like anyone else.
2: Yeah. And it's for that reason that she writes, quote, the female nude has not been an ideologically correct artistic pursuit for African-American artists. And this also harkens a lot to our podcast um, on women's butts and uh, Sarki Bartman. Aka Hottentot Venus, who is the, the primary example of that kind of scientific pornography really that was happening at the time of putting African women on display to naked, or almost naked, to ogle their bodies in that kind of way and then on top of that of course like you said this hypersexualization that was going on and this was something also explored in the book Skin Deep Spirit Strong the black female body in american culture which discusses how art historian Judith Wilson in the early 90s looked for and found zero black female nudes painted by african american artists in the 19th century again because The subject was verboten. And then further, this project called The Image of the Black Woman in Western Art Research identified only one full nude of an African-American woman from the 19th century. And it was created, though, by a visiting Swiss artist. And then the author goes on to talk about how there are beyond that very few 19th and early 20th century nudes of black women it's just i mean it, it, it really just doesn't exist in a lot of ways right because as we've touched on throughout this
3: episode what we see on on the canvas or in marble is typically an artist's or a group of artists concept of what ideal feminine beauty or ideal male beauty is and frequently Black or African American subjects were completely left out of that because black men and women in our country were definitely thought to be dangerous or hypersexual. Whereas, and so they therefore could not fit this sort of
2: pure virginal idea of what femininity should be. Well, and it seems like we, we end up with then this hierarchy of almost morality and like what is deemed beautiful in art. Where at the top you have these idealized classical young virginal hairless female nudes, and then that image of the more mature with hair prostitute, mm-hmm. usually white, and then women of color. So I mean, it's you start to see all of these kinds of patterns emerging, which leads us to these questions of well, what is all of us, all of this telling us? What are we supposed to think now when we walk through? the Met, say, and see, you know, that 76 percent of all those female nudes going on. And especially considering the fact, yes, that they're painted almost exclusively by male artists. And you don't see that reciprocal relationship with, oh, well, we also have this huge body of, uh, no pun intended, of male nudes that are painted by female artists because th- those guys were their muses. Yeah, well, cause
3: women, like you said, were excluded from those schools, from those academies. It's not like they were out there in the 16th century or, you know, 17th century getting a commission because that was unfeminine and inappropriate. Um, so a lot of female artists and there, there were female artists. A lot of them would never, ever be able to achieve the standing that
2: some of these men did with their nudes. And it's interesting too to see how with more contemporary female artists, there's not so much an interest in like, well, let's paint a lot of penises. We'll show them, but rather re- an intent to reclaim the female nude. Yeah.
3: And I wonder. Yes. And I and I think that um, seeing some contemporary nudes by women of women are fascinating. And they're definitely more on the Rubin and Ruben's end of the spectrum than than not. Um but I do, this does make me wonder about the context of that, that forever the female nude has just equaled uh, perfection, purity, the, a man's ideal of what femininity is. Yeah. So it's it's interesting when you have women like those painting, uh, paintings like Ruby May. Um, what that means to them and what they want it to mean to their audience, because it obviously means something different than the Capitoline Venus, for instance.
2: Well, and that's something that contemporary artist Jenny Seville, whose body of work has really focused on the female nude and sort of playing around with that and reclaiming it and painting it in less flattering ways than you you know, might see in classical art. Um, she has said, quote, there's a thing about beauty. Beauty is always associated with the male fantasy of what the female body is. I don't think there's anything wrong with beauty. It's just what women think is beautiful can be different. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how that, how the nude, the female nude changes when the artist is also female. Again,
3: so lovely to get different people's perspectives into art and life. That's right. Diversity
0: it is important. This episode is brought to you by Quip. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, Good Habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more.
1: The Quip smart brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth, so you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards. Already have a Quip?
0: Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash stuffmom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash stuffmom, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash stuffmom. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding.
1: This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh.
2: I want to hear listeners' perspectives on these things. I have a feeling that we have some art history students listening, perhaps some practicing artists, maybe some painters. We would love to get some more expert insight into this whole female nude thing. So let us know all of, all of your nude thoughts. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
3: Okay, I have a letter here from Bethany about our director's episode. She says, I recently listened to your podcast about the first female directors, and oh my gosh, was I inspired and a bit angered. As a film student wanting to be a director, we're required to take film history lessons. The three women you mentioned were never discussed in any of my classes, and that really ticks me off. This truly is a man's industry, and I, for one, am inspired by these three ladies and others to change that. After I listened to the podcast, I immediately began searching YouTube for their works, especially Lois Weber's Hypocrites. When I have viewed a number from each, I'll definitely email back with my thoughts. However, for a film that isn't necessarily directed by a female, but stars Gina Rowland and is phenomenal, please watch A Woman Under the Influence. Directed by her husband, John Cassavetes, and also starring Peter Folk, it's a great film. Thank you, ladies, for doing this podcast and opening my eyes to how much I didn't know about my career in terms of being a woman and who has paved the way for me to have the opportunities I can.
2: So thank you, Bethany. Well, I've got a letter here from Samantha, who was inspired to write us after listening to our interview with Julie Siegel, founder of Dear Kate, and also a listener letter about um, someone else who was doing the same thing of going into a STEM field and then turning toward the apparel industry. And she writes, Here I am getting a science degree in textiles. We often overlook the science part of the garment and textile industry. A lot of effort is put into keeping people comfortable and safe, and there are laws to follow and tests that have to be done on almost every garment that you see. There are acts in the U.S. that state specifically what and how textiles are labeled, and there are a lot of specific regulations regarding flammability, children's apparel, and even regulations on how to label fibers that come from bamboo. Most of these regulations have at least one test to prove that the textile falls within the acceptable limits, and this must be done in an accredited lab. There is also a ton of current research and development in medical textiles and protective textiles. So, with all these tests and all this research being done, it's surprising to me that these women feel weird going into apparel with a science background. Anyone can design a pair of panties or a shirt or a dress with a little bit of creativity and a pencil. It takes an understanding of the science behind the scenes to understand the best fabric choice, how and why tests are done, and to make educated decisions regarding things like which dye to use and which finish. I think having a background in science and an understanding of business gives you a leg up in the industry and will come in handy as you grow your business and encounter all these regulations being placed on the textile and apparel industry. So thanks, Samantha, for highlighting this STEM field that we might not often think of. And thanks to everybody else who's written in to us. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with our sources so you can read more about female nudes, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Paper Ghosts is
2: a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns. For more than 50 years, each case has remained unsolved.
0: Every day is like being lost in limbo pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on.
2: It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn, a breakthrough, answers to decades-old questions, and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing. I can smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine, I hope
0: that's not a grave for many.
2: Oh, you know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Gold Club was the top strip club in Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal. From the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.